new series in uh, Genesis today. Um, this, today we're going to focus on the big picture of Genesis chapter 1, uh, the creation of the world. So even though the creation of humanity uh, starts to be addressed in chapter 1, uh, we're going to leave that till next week, because next week we'll focus on chapter 2, and then, so it's this week, creation of the world, and next week, creation particularly of humanity. So uh, that's where we're going. Uh, let me pray before we uh, look further at this wonderful text. Heavenly Father, uh, your word tells us that in the beginning, uh, you made everything. And indeed, the world we see around us is in many ways, amazingly, a testimony to your power and your majesty. Uh, thank you for the world in which we live. Thank you for life. And as we reflect on these truths, well known to many of us uh, in terms of the passage itself. May these truths impact us in a more deeper way. Uh, may we come away from this passage today uh, refreshed in our wonder and our admiration for you and your creation. Amen. A little boy is playing on the beach. Uh, he finds two pieces of wood and he carries them back to his dad. And he says to his dad, hey, dad, what are these for? The dad takes them, and he looks at each of them in turn. This bit of wood is driftwood, he says. It's not for anything. It must have fallen into the sea, and at some point, it just got washed up. But then he looks at the other piece of wood. It's curved and smooth. It consists of two pieces that have been joined together, and it has a metal hook screwed into the top of it. This piece of wood, however, is for hanging your clothes on. It's a coat hanger. Well, to discover whether or not our lives have any purpose, we have to consider the question of origins. And there are only two options. Either the world was created or it came about by chance. The question is, which is it? And, of course, this is a live debate today. Uh, I would commend to you a book by Charles Colson uh, called How Now Shall We Live? Uh, he's done a fantastic job of presenting uh, a clear Christian worldview, but in so doing also shows how uh, non-Christian worldviews sit with it. So he's, a, he's very good, Charles Colson, uh, for helping us see the Christian worldview but also alternative uh, rival views. Uh, in his book, he states that one of the greatest philosophical battles of our time is this conflict between what he calls uh, and what is called theism and naturalism. Uh, theism is the belief that there is a transcendent God who created the universe and indeed who pre-existed the universe, theism. Uh, the universe is dependent on every moment, uh, every moment on his providential governance and care. But naturalism, on the other hand, is the belief that natural causes alone are sufficient to explain everything that exists. In other words, uh, life arose from a chance collision of atoms evolving eventually into human life. And these two opposing views raise huge 
uh, philosophical questions, uh, such as, is ultimate reality God or the cosmos? Uh, is there a supernatural realm or is nature all that exists? Has God spoken and revealed his truth? Or is truth something we have to find or even invent for ourselves? Uh, was the universe created uh, like that second piece of wood? Has the universe and have we actually been designed and created for a purpose? Or did the universe come into being by an accident? Are we like the first piece of wood that just happens to fall into the sea at some point and get washed up on the shore? Because if so, our lives have no ultimate purpose. So, there are those two points of view, and they do then present to us very key questions about life. And so, the question of our origins, you see, therefore, does affect our understanding of the purpose of life. And when we come to this first book of the Bible, Genesis, it's all about origins. Indeed, the title itself, Genesis, means origin. Uh, that was not the original title, but it was given by the first translators of the Old Testament into Greek. And Genesis answers the questions of origins in its very first line. Verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, to understand any text of the Bible, like with any literature, uh, it is helpful to take a step back and to say, who wrote it? Uh, when was it written? What was their intent in writing it? Who were they writing to? And we need to ask those questions of Genesis, as we do any piece of literature we read. So, firstly, who wrote Genesis? Well, both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirmed that the author was Moses. Uh, he was the author of the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And when we look at the, um, the internal evidence of the Bible, uh, it points to it having been written during the wilderness journey of the Israelites, after the dramatic liberation from their slavery in Egypt. And therefore, that's the context for the writing of Genesis. The people are there in the desert, and they're reflecting back on this surprise rescue by God of them from slavery. And they're also in the desert, but they're dreaming of the promised land to which God has promised they will eventually arrive. And of course, think about them in the desert. They're going to have many questions about, firstly, God. Who is this God who has so powerfully saved us? They would also be asking, who are we in relation to this God? And what does he require of us? What is his purpose for us? And you see, it's into that context that God inspires Moses to write the book of Genesis and indeed the other four books, the five books which can constitute the Pentateuch. And it's written to answer those questions. Now, before we dive into what Genesis does say, it's worth first having uh, two qualifications about uh, what it doesn't say and what it doesn't address. So firstly, Genesis was not written to convince the atheist 
Uh, it assumes God's existence. Uh, it wasn't written to convince people that God exists. It's not seeking to present evidence to convince the skeptic or the atheist. It just assumes God exists. It's written to the Israelites. Uh, they knew all too well God existed. They didn't need any convincing of that. Uh, they had seen this God deliver them through mighty powerful acts from slavery in Egypt. So on the one hand then, uh, Genesis is not written to convince skeptics of the existence of God. But it's not to say that the Bible has nothing to say to the skeptic or indeed to the seeker. Uh, you just go elsewhere in the Bible. Of course, the Bible maintains that the creation has this amazing, wonderful, intricate order which points to and testifies to the existence of a creator. At Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Uh, scientists today are increasingly recognizing that the physical structure of the universe gives striking evidence of purpose and design. Uh, when we look at our world, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm sure that, uh, if you're anything like me, I'm sure you enjoy those David Attenborough nature programs. Uh, aren't they just amazing? The way that they reveal on a, a macro and a micro level how these incredible systems of nature function to enable everything, to enable life to be uh, continued and to propagate. Aren't they incredible? Uh, sadly, of course, uh, David Attenborough doesn't heed Romans 1 verse 20. Uh, he doesn't attribute the wonder of creation ultimately to a creator. But it's all there, isn't it? The amazing intricacy of the world in which we live. Now, uh, scientists have something called the anthropic principle. Uh, and this states that the physical structures of the universe are exactly what they need to be for life to be supported and sustained. Uh, the anthropic principle says that uh, the world bears the hallmarks of design uh, from the wonders of the galaxies to the complexity of the human body and indeed the atom. Uh, it is incredible, isn't it, when you start digging into it and you just start to understand, as presented in those films uh, with our friend Mr. Attenborough, just the wonder of the world. Let me share with you just a few to um, hopefully enthuse you a little bit. Uh, thinking about uh, the world's orbit, the Earth's orbit. Did you know that if the Earth were just slightly close to the sun, all the water on the planet would boil away? Uh, on the other hand, if the Earth was just slightly further from the sun, all the water would freeze. But as it is, the Earth is just the right distance from the sun for water to be sustainable on the planet. Uh, the chemical reactions necessary for life to function occur within a very narrow temperature range. Lo and behold, the Earth is just the right distance from the sun 
so that the temperature range on the planet fall within that range for sustaining life. Another fact, uh, for life to happen and to be sustained on the Earth, the Earth must have a circular orbit around the Sun. Now, um, of the 20 planets discovered outside of our solar system in recent years, more than half of them have what are called egg-shaped killer orbits, which lead to cosmic collisions. They don't have perfectly circular orbits, and on them, life is unsustainable. But our Earth just happens to have a wonderful, beautiful, symmetric circular orbit. Uh, our world has been compared to a finely engineered, jeweled Swiss watch. And its precision points to design and to purpose. And it's been said that the, uh, the undevout astronomer is mad. Uh, sadly, many still exist. Uh, so the first qualifier we're seeing in Genesis is that it, it wasn't written uh, to convince the skeptic of God's existence, but nevertheless, there's plenty of evidence which points to God's existence. Uh, the second qualifier is this. Genesis was not written to answer the questions of modern science. Uh, in, in terms of um, Genesis, it's not describing how the world was made, uh, which is the domain of science, but it's rather addressing the issues of who made it and why. But here again, uh, this is not to say that modern science is in conflict with Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in the uh, 18th through to the midpoint of the 20th century, uh, many scientists were dismissive of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in this era, uh, they viewed uh, the universe as being eternal. Uh, they didn't believe it had a beginning. Uh, this was rooted in the idea that matter could neither be created nor destroyed. And so between the 18th to the mid-20th century, Genesis 1 was seen as just a mere myth by many scientists. However, in the mid-20th century, things started to change. Uh, in the mid-20th century, various scientific findings and theories actually moved towards supporting uh, Genesis chapter 1, although, of course, many scientists still didn't want to admit it. Uh, in the mid-20th century, it was discovered that the universe is constantly expanding. And this and other lines of evidence led to the formation of what's called the Big Bang Theory, the world started with a cosmic explosion. The universe started with a cosmic explosion. In other words, it had a beginning. And you see, as a result, scientific data and theories are no longer necessarily incompatible with Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and indeed, not to get too technical, but uh, for you scientists amongst us, uh, the second law of thermodynamics states the universe is in the process of running down. It's a bit like a wound-up clock. And if it's running down, there must have been a time when it was wound up. It points to the universe having a beginning. So, uh, two qualifiers in regards to Genesis 1. Um, having qualified what Genesis 1 is not saying, let's think now about what it is saying. Uh, what vital truths did Genesis chapter 1 teach the Israelites in the desert? 
And how should these truths impact us today? So firstly, uh, God is the one and only. Chapter 1, verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created. Uh, It doesn't say God's plural, uh, but God singular. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, there is only one God, and He is the God who creates everything. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is a, a polemic, an argument against pluralism. So think about the context of the people to whom it was first written, the Israelites in the desert. Uh, They, prior to that, had been in Egypt for over 400 years. And Egypt was very polytheistic. It was a culture which worshipped many gods. And yet they, the Israelites, of course, were monotheists. And yet they had been for over four centuries in this polytheistic culture. And that culture... Uh, It didn't deny that Israel's God existed. Uh, The ethos and the thinking was very much uh, at the time, each nation and each people had its own gods. Uh, We've got our gods. Uh, You've got your gods. Uh, You can worship your gods. We'll worship ours. And there it is. Uh, Pluralism. Everyone has their own point of view. Everyone has their own gods. And yet what happens? Uh, During the plagues the folly of this pluralism is made plain. Uh, During the plagues which God brings, the Egyptian gods are effectively systematically exposed as being false. Uh, Each plague in some way dethrones an Egyptian god in a small g. Uh, The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile god, and yet God turns the Nile into blood. The Egyptians worshipped a god in the image of a frog, and yet the frogs were subservient to God's commands to invade Cairo. Uh, The Egyptians worshipped the sun, and yet, under God's command, its light was shut out for over three days. Do you see? The Egyptian gods, with a small g, were powerless in the face of the one true God of Israel. And now in Genesis chapter 1, Moses affirms to the Israelite community in the desert... That's truth. There is only one God, the true creator, and he is separate from everything that he has made. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped uh, the God of the sun and the God of the moon, and yet Genesis says in verse 16, God made two greater lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. You see what he's saying. Don't make the mistake of the Egyptians. Worship the one true God. Keep the creator and the creation separate. They are distinct. Uh, Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses applies this truth to the Israelite community. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, Because there's only one God, He rightly requires our exclusive devotion. Because there's only one God, He rightly 
requires our exclusive worship. Uh, sadly, what do we see when we see the Israelites in their subsequent history? Uh, did they hold that truth? Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, once settled in the promised land, they would succumb to the worship of the pagan deities from the surrounding nations. And tragically, the Israelites paid the price. Under God's judgment, they were exiled ultimately from the land. Uh, bringing it home to ourselves today, uh, Genesis 1 exposes the folly of pluralism in our Western society. Because, in a sense, the ethos of then is very much alive and well now. Uh, the prevailing attitude is, in our society is, uh, we've got our gods, you've got yours, and no one has the right to say that their God is superior over the others. And yet, the reality is, there is only one true God who has made everything. And he requires our exclusive devotion. And therefore, to not worship the one true God is ultimately destructive to ourselves. So that's the first thing we see in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, there is only one God and he made everything. Uh, secondly, the second thing we see is that God created everything out of nothing. And therefore, he's incredibly powerful. Uh, Verse 1 again, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, now the, the heavens and the earth is a, an expression, a way of saying God created everything. Uh, to begin with there was nothing, and apart from, God, apart from God that is, and everything that is has come into being because God created it. And how did he do it? Genesis 1 tells us he did it with consummate ease. Uh, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Uh, the phrase, and God said, occurs ten times in this chapter. And with the light, uh, the command is followed by the statement, And there was light. Uh, it just happens exactly as commanded. And after each command, there is this wonderful shorthand, and it was so. It comes up seven times in the chapter. Uh, for example, verse 9. Uh, and God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Do you see what it is? It is breathtaking power in action. Uh, nothing in our own personal experience can come anywhere close to it. Imagine being able to just command something into existence. Just to say, let there be light, let there be sky, let there be land, let there be vegetation, let there be sun, moon, and stars. And it was so. Let's bring it back to the Israelites in the desert. If you are one of God's people in the time of Moses... How would this shape your picture of God? It would remind them, God is all-powerful, awesomely so. And so what? What difference would that make to them and their lives and their journey? Well, 
the big takeaway for them would be trust. As they look at God's power, they would be encouraged to put their trust in that powerful God who has already demonstrated his concern for their well-being. On the journey ahead, they would face impossible situations at times as they enter this alien and foreign land. And they needed to know that the God that led them there had the power to overcome their biggest enemies and the power to deliver on his promises to them. So you see what Genesis 1 would do? Genesis 1 would be fuel for their faith. It would encourage trust in the powerful God, the creator God. Bringing it to us today. This is the God in whom we trust. He is the powerful God. The God who has awesome power. The one who can create out of nothing something. And he can do it effortlessly. What's the implication of that? For God, no obstacle is too big. And no enemy can prevent him fulfilling his purposes in our lives. Are you facing an impossible situation at the moment? Are you facing a situation by which you feel daunted? You can't see a way forward. Do you feel weighed down by that situation, whether it be at home or at work? Remember, God is there, and God is ultimately in control. He's the awesomely powerful God, and in your situation of need, you can trust him. And Genesis 1 encourages us to renew our trust in the powerful creator God. So, we've seen firstly how God is the one and only. Uh, Secondly, he created everything out of nothing. Thirdly and lastly, God brings good out of chaos. Here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just say, Let there be everything. Uh, Why does he go to the trouble of having all these separate commands and stages over uh, six days? Uh, He could have done it all with just a single command, so why didn't he? And I think the answer is this. God did it for our benefit to teach us something very important. And what he's teaching us is this. God brings order and goodness out of chaos and darkness. God brings order and goodness out of chaos and darkness. That is the outworking of his mighty creative power. Uh, You obviously notice the, the world starts without form, void and dark. Uh, Verse 2 again. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But what happens? Uh, Through His Word and His Spirit, God transforms this uninhabitable environment. Uh, Formless becomes formed. Void becomes filled. God brings light and He brings form. And separating the waters in verse 6 and forming the dry land in verse 9. And he brings order. 
The six days in the Genesis 1 accounts, actually they are very carefully structured. The first three days correspond to the last three days. In the first three days, God creates a form which he then fills in the second three days. So day one, God creates light and dark. He creates light, it would seem, without reference to a sun at this point. He has just created light. It's not dependent on a sun. And yet in day four, he fills the lights of the sun and the moon. Day two, he creates the sea and the sky, which he then fills in day five with the creatures of the water and the air. Uh, day three, he creates the land and makes it fertile. And then day six, he populates it with people and land animals. So, you see, we go from form to filling. And so, God brings goodness. That's the repeated refrain. And God saw that it was good. Uh, he brings blessing. Uh, we see that three times in this opening section. Yet, uh, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, everything starts to unravel, and we'll see that in two weeks' time. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, and we see thereafter God's judgment. And in God's judgment, we see the orderliness of creation in some way being reversed. Uh, disintegration and death are introduced into the creation uh, darkness and disorder return. Uh, we see that in the flood with, with Noah. Uh, God commands the waters to overrun the boundaries set between land and sea. Uh, we see it in the plagues brought on the Egyptians. In some way, it is an undoing of the order of creation. And this disintegration and disorder, it's not just physical, uh, but it's also spiritual and moral. The whole world is now under God's judgment, and the whole world is in that state of chaos and darkness. And because of the fall, each of our lives have plunged into the darkness of sin and death. Now, by nature, our lives are spiritually formless, void, and dark. And the question is, what hope is there? And it's God's creative power of Genesis 1 which gives us hope. And if God has done it before, he can do it again. He can reverse the darkness. He can reverse the disorder. And he can reverse the disintegration of sin. Remember the Israelites in the desert? They would go to the land, but ultimately they would lose the land. They would be in exile. And they would be sitting in exile saying, what hope is there for us now? And Genesis chapter 1 would give them hope in exile. Give them hope that God would again restore order, whereas they now sat under the disorder as a result of their sin. And Genesis 1 not only gives hope to those exiles many centuries ago, Genesis 1 also gives us hope today. Because, of course, we know that through Jesus... God has done this wonderful work. He has done that work of restoring order and countering the disorder of sin and death. 
enter the darkness, Jesus, the light of the world, has come. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 actually quotes Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 when he says this, uh, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How wonderful. God, through the gospel, through Jesus, brings spiritual light. He brings spiritual order and spiritual blessing. And the desert of our hearts becomes once again a fruitful land as God, through the work of his gospel and through his spirit, transforms us. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 reminds us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Do you see? Wonderfully, God's creative power is at work in you and in me, if we trust in Jesus. It's at work to save us, and it then is at work to transform us into all we were meant to be as people. It starts now with faith in Christ and it ultimately climaxes in Jesus' return when that creative power of God will be exercised on a cosmic level to restore all things. How wonderful that day will be. And for now we wait for it and we thank God for Jesus who makes it all possible. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, Genesis 1 points us to deep and profound truths about yourself, about the world you have made, and what it points us back to in terms of your character. You are the only true God. You are the powerful God. You are the God who brings order out of chaos. As we reflect on these truths, may they encourage us on life's journey to trust you more, and to indeed rejoice in that work that you do in our hearts and lives through the gospel of transforming us to be the people you want us to be, uh, which moves us to that glorious endpoint of life in the new and perfectly restored creation. Thank you for that sure hope we have in Jesus, and help us on that journey, we pray, to increasingly be the people you want us to be to your glory. Amen.